Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today, as always, for our Tuesday show is our producer and friend, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? It's going well, Bradley. I feel compelled to say right away that I'm in Las Vegas. I don't know why that would be important to anyone listening to this. Well, um, one reason why is that you're still up from last night, if not to bed yet. Of course. I mean, I've been gambling all night. Um, and I mean, I'm way up, as I always am when I'm in Vegas. You know, I'm thousands and thousands in the black. So um, I'm feeling great. Took, took a break to record a podcast and you go back to the tables. So, Bradley, I have to ask you, are you, when you come to Vegas or you go somewhere where there's like casino gambling, do you gamble like a little just to do no, it? No, I don't gamble at all. Zero. Uh, zero. Um, and I have to say, in a weird way, I find Vegas kind of boring, right? Because like the last time I was there, if, if you're working, fine. But if, if you're not, um, if you don't gamble, there's not, and I'm not going to like the nightclubs, there's not really very much to do. Like you can have some really big meal at a casino. And then after that, it's kind of dead. Well, there's either, I'm going to this place called Area 15 today, which is like started by like some guy from the Blue Man Group. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I heard there's some cool like alternative art type stuff. Yeah, so I'm going to try that. But I, I the Alamo is there, I think someone told me. The, um, the, the swimming pools are nice. So like you can do some pool time. If that's, sure. You're not a real pool guy. Where are you guys, I'm not at all. Where are you guys staying? Of the park MGM. There's an Eataly here. So Oh wow. There you go. It's, it's like you never left. <laughs> exactly. We just had we just had breakfast down there and it was like, wow, this is like 23rd Street. Um anyway, Bradley, you have we have a lot of big things to talk about. Yeah. And I want to preface our, the first thing on our agenda by saying, so this is a subject that Bradley wanted to talk about a few weeks ago. And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's inappropriate. And then a lot of other people started talking about it. So now we can talk about it them talking about it and it's like we're it's like kind of somehow permissible maybe yeah i think it would have been fine a few weeks ago as well okay um, so here here is the question which is well, everything that's happening in ukraine and russia is being driven by one person vladimir putin right it's not really from anything we can tell it's not being driven by like a group of of ideologues within russia it's not like Zelensky and the Ukrainians are picking a fight and trying to get them to, to come there and attack. It is one guy's version of the world, his delusions of grandeur, whatever it is, that is driving all of this, right? So we know that uh, over a million and a half people have already had to evacuate their homes. Thousands have died. God knows what the number will be by the time this is over. So the question I asked Hugo a few weeks ago is, what if they just assassinated Putin? Right. Like if you just got rid of him and nobody else thinks this war is a good idea, couldn't it just come to an end immediately? And Hugo came back with all the, well, you can't assassinate a foreign leader. It's illegal. And then they'll come attack back. And, you know, all the usual excuses as to why you can't do something. Oh, my God. You're making me sound like such a such a wimp. You were in this case. You you didn't want to talk about it on the air. And so then over the weekend, <laughs> Hugo sends me a clip that Sean Hannity had endorsed this. And that created a permission structure in his mind that we could then talk about it. Um, I don't feel like I really needed the permission structure personally. No, you never feel like you need a permission structure, Bradley. No. So, so I guess here's the question. Okay. One, is it now automatically a stupid idea simply because Sean Hannity called for it? Um, well, I, I definitely wasn't suggesting that, although it, I guess that, that equation does work in many other instances. Um, so I don't know. Do you think it's a stupid idea? Well, I don't think it's a stupid idea. It's probably a bad idea. And this is a distinction, right? So a stupid idea would mean something you didn't think through, like going to war in Iraq in 2002 or whatever, 
right? But you think uh, they didn't think that through? I think I like to think that because if they honestly knew that there was no link to 9-11 at all and no chance of weapons of mass destruction, then it's one of the most criminal acts in the history of this country. And so I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, I think, they, I mean, if anything, they overthought it through, I would say. I mean, you know, the, the invasion and occupation of Iraq was a, you know, a 25-year vision, right? Like, well, yeah, but that was all predicated on what's the excuse to spend a trillion dollars uh, for Halliburton and other defense contractors in a country that really doesn't matter to us one way or the other. So, look, the reward is significant if you assassinate Putin. If it turns out that, you know, the thesis of, Nobody in Russia wants this war except him. Nobody in Ukraine wants this war except him. And therefore, if he no longer exists, everyone will just embrace reality and move away from it. That's huge, right? That will save thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. It would end the concern of Putin continuing to encroach uh, on Eastern Europe uh, and this sort of world where this guy who has power to you know, access to the largest nuclear arsenal in the world or second largest um, all of a sudden is one of the most uh, you know, public figures, also perhaps the wealthiest person on the earth. So the, the upside is pretty clear. The downside is what happens if if you succeed, but it's interpreted a different way or if you fail, right? So if you succeed and it's interpreted a different way, you have now killed the theoretically duly elected leader of Russia. Although, of course, it's a di- dictatorship there, so he's not really legitimately elected. Uh, there is a clear foreign ban on political assassinations. And arguably, if if the Russians came into Washington and got Joe Biden outside the White House, I think we would feel like we needed to then attack Russia with, if not nuclear weapons, everything else we had, right? So if we were to do that and Russia reacted the same way and all of a sudden there's missiles flying onto U.S. soil, then clearly assassinating Putin to save the Ukrainians was the wrong call, Right. Or it's a Castro-like situation where you keep trying to kill them and they just can't, right? It would seem like, it's funny. So remember, I was watching Godfather 2 recently with Lyle, and like there was a line in there from, from Michael saying, you know, if you're willing to give your life for it, you can kill anyone, right? Uh, and ironically, he was in Cuba watching Castro and, and his men at the time, and, and that's what inspires his statement. The U.S. government, the CIA, was certainly willing to take risks to, to assassinate Castro, and they couldn't do it no matter what they did. So the the most dangerous scenario would be you try to assassinate Putin, you fail, and then he comes back at you, right? right? It seems like a disaster. The second most dangerous would be you try, you succeed, but it is interpreted by the Russian people or whoever is seizing power at the FRB and everywhere else as the best political path forward is to retaliate, right? And the third would be, you know, kind of a high risk, high reward ups option, which is Nobody wants us but him. They'll all be thinking we did them a huge favor if we get rid of them. So let's just just do this, right? That sounds like a pretty tiny target, right? I mean, that's- I agree. The, the upside doesn't outweigh the downside. But now let's let's extend this because the reality is, as we've proven, despite kind of media coverage, average Americans don't care about the Ukraine, right? If we did, uh, then there'd be a very- It's, it's definitely topic. not a big topic of discussion here in Las Vegas. Right. So- then the question became, okay, so now he's moving from the Ukraine to Poland. He's in NATO countries. So we know that there is likely to be a much broader war unless you kill Putin, right? And everyone else in Russia just says, okay, this was just him. We don't need to do this. So taking that risk to defend Ukraine, not worth it. 
taking that risk to defend NATO may be worth it, right? And so I don't think we have to sort of seriously think about this today, but assuming the Russians succeed in Ukraine, which I believe that they will, uh, and they eventually take that country over, which I believe that they will, if they choose just to keep going east and once they get past Estonia and want to get into you know, NATO-backed countries, um, it's a different calculation. So I, I think that while there's no answer today that says, yes, go ahead and assassinate Putin, uh, that calculus could change a lot in a year or two or five or whatever. Let me ask you, um, uh, uh, I mean, we're t- this is a serious discussion, but a, a, a more pointed serious question is, do you think that the United States government is a handling this well and B, I mean, and I just mean just in terms of how you feel as a citizen, that our interests are being looked after. Yeah, I think so. Look, the U.S. government is Biden to continue to do that. Yeah, yes and yes. So the U.S. government, I think, is trying to balance a couple of key things, right? One, they don't want to start World War III. Two, they recognize that the average American citizen could care less about what happens in the Ukraine, right? And they're not willing to risk American lives or huge amounts of American money for the Ukraine. Uh, but third would be trying to prevent both massive human rights uh, violations and also trying to prevent Putin uh, from becoming even stronger and more aggressive, right? And right. so it's balancing after the three. And I would say Biden, Blinken, that team seems to be, you know, for, for what there's not going to be an exact right solution that balances those three different options. So I think given that they're weighing all three at the same time, I think they're balancing it reasonably well. And I would say this is the kind of issue I'd have confidence in Joe Biden in. He's, he chaired the Foreign Relations Committee, spent decades in the Senate dealing with foreign policy type issues like this, presumably had some exposure to it as vice president. And so, yeah, I think in terms of a measured approach, uh, I feel better at Biden at the helm here than, than, than anybody. And do you think, as it appears to be happening, that, that this, this isolates Trump in a, in, a, in a good way for the Democrats and, and for also other Republican senators? You like to think so right now. Um, but, you know, how many times over the last five, six years now has Trump said or done something? We're like, OK, that's it. Oh, he yeah. finally yeah. went too far. He finally crossed the line. And that's like gotten Trump. over that a little bit. Right. Like just because after having it happen 500 times. Right. So like, yes, he sort of is defending Putin. Um, and yes, he is so, sort of saying all the wrong things. And in a normal world that would further reduce his chances of winning the nomination in 2024, the general election. I just don't think the normal rules of gravity apply to Donald Trump in either direction. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Now on to the subject, I guess, you know, we're here with, we're here talking about Putin. We're here talking about um, Trump, you know, and and now you'd you'd like to open the discussion up to, um, to this question of, of whether it's best to be a sociopath. Let's explain. So I, I kind of are now confused listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're probably not confused because they're like, no, I get it. I'm I'm in with like Bradley's way of thinking. I know exactly where he's coming from. Right. So we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago about Michael Schur's new book called How to Be Perfect, which effectively is a kind of pop version of taking three different schools of philosophy, one based on intentions, one based on outcomes, uh, and one based on uh, what was the Aristotelian again? Balance, I guess. Yeah. Uh, based on balance. And we spent a decent amount of time dissecting that book, which is the right way to be. Sure does a nice job applying it to very everyday situations in real life. Like if you push the grocery cart to your car, you're then supposed to put it back somewhere or not. Right. Um, 
And so I was thinking about this. I read the Washington Post reviewed Scherer's book yesterday. So I, I read the review and it kind of got me thinking about it a little more. I'm just going to read you what I, this is what I texted you uh, and what I wrote. Because it make, makes sense. Make these texts available to, to like premium subscribers of Firewall. Yeah, exactly. It's 25 cents a month. Um, <laughs> so here's what I wrote. If we accept that there is no such thing as the good place or bad place, no universal calculus of your own good versus evil, no one overriding narrative for any individual, then everyone is just doing whatever they can live with between looking out for themselves and looking out for everyone collectively, Hobbes versus Rousseau. If that's the case, then your goodness, your altruism, is just proportionate to whatever's needed to convince you uh, that you're doing enough for society. So for some people, believing themselves to be good is very difficult and it impacts them in very different ways. You have people like me who are always, always striving, uh, but kind of refuse to ever sort of accept, you know, victory and are always snatching defeat from the jaws of victory uh, and can't get there. Can't Do you refuse that. to accept victory, Bradley? Is that something you would claim? I'm trying hard to convince myself to learn how to do it. But yeah, sure. So like, and hunger has been the one that I've been trying to use as, as the wedge here. Um, you know, I got a memo of an analysis that we did uh, in December that showed that we've passed bills in the last five or six years in 15 states, giving 12 million more people, mainly kids and senior citizens, um, access to food. And my initial reaction was like, all right, that's pretty good. But like, until I make universal school meals happen in all 50 states, you know, big deal, right? Um, And then I kind of thought like 12 million more people who wouldn't have had food now do in part because of our work and our money and everything else. It's it's okay to feel good about that and not move the goalposts. I am constantly moving the goalposts on myself. Um, So anyway, so you're either striving where you can get there, that's like me, or you go the other way entirely right you were like it's impossible to be good so fuck it i'm not going to try right for some people probably true of most people it's neither never impossible to sort of accept yourself as good nor are you so hyper neurotic uh about defining it so that's most people and they do what they need to do it requires some effort some attempts to sort of do what you believe to be moral um but it doesn't control all of their decisions and then you have the third category which is the sociopaths right they require nothing, which means their exertion is zero. So if, if the whole point is there's no good place, there's no bad place, there's no collective scorekeeping of, of your actions, good or bad, evil or, or humanitarian, there's no one mega narrative for your life that anyone is forming for you, then it's basically a free-for-all where you're just trying to sort of get through life, feeling as good as you can about yourself as a human being. And if you worry a lot about that, um, then life becomes harder and more complicated because you're constantly facing ethical dilemmas, moral dilemmas, economic dilemmas, uh, and trying to think through it. But if you are truly a sociopath and you don't ever think about the impact of your actions on other people, or you don't think about other people at all, it's, it's purely just based on your needs and nothing else, then what you need to get there to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm a good enough person in the world is extremely little to nothing, right? Which means if everyone's trying to get to the same place, which is feeling good about themselves, you would theoretically want to do it with the least exertion required. The least exertion required is actually by a sociopath. So, Bradley, I'm confused here because what what's the what's the the thinking that least exertion is is the goal for anybody? Is it, so, is the, if, is it the, no, the goal is self acceptance and happiness, understanding that there is no moral absolute or truth. Right, but do you and, think a sociopath yeah. is a a relaxed person who is like content with themselves. 
Is that 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 just seems? I think it is a person who maybe I think it's a person who is incapable of telling right from wrong, doesn't have a conscience, doesn't ever think about or worry about the impact of, of their actions on on another person. But and they're I also like known to be insanely paranoid too, and like constantly worried that like someone's out to get them. So that feels to me to be. Is that a sociopath or just someone who has paranoia and which can be treated with medicine? <laughs> well, everything can be treated with medicine. So I, I guess, look, the last thing that I wrote on this is it's hard to see that in a world of relativity, why being a sociopath isn't actually the best option. So if, right. if you believe truly that everything is relative, if you believe truly that there's absolutely no moral truth or arbor or authority whatsoever, which by the way, doesn't mean there's not God. It just means that it's a very hands-off God that basically allows people free will. Um, if you believe all of that, and you're just trying to be okay with yourself, then maybe the least, the lowest your standards for yourself, the better off you are. But this is all, of course, wildly theoretical because having thought all this through, or you know, you're you're not you're not um, you know choosing to become a sociopath as if that could actually be. You a can't sociopath. make yourself a sociopath. That's the problem. Right. It would be great to have like some sort of lobotomy type thing, and you just don't give a shit anymore. Right. Uh, but in reality, I don't think you can you can do that. So as a result, you know, you're going to live with your own psyche, your own conscience, your own morals either way. Um, but, you know, look, I walk around with this five ton weight dragging behind me at all times. I would be a much I'd be much better off if I didn't have that. A lot of that weight is the result of me putting societal pressures on myself and thinking, oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. But if I didn't feel like I needed to do it, then the weight wouldn't exist in the first place. Right. So, you know, look, we can't all be so lucky as to be a sociopath, but uh, for those who are, it it may actually be the better outcome. Do you think you know any? I think Rob Lagojevich was pretty close to it, yeah. Oh, really? It was very hard for him to understand the impact of his actions on other people, to care about it. All our listeners know who Rod Blagojevich is, but for the two or three new people here today. Uh, He um, he was the governor of Illinois, my boss when I was a deputy governor of Illinois, uh, eventually ended up uh, being sentenced to a 14 year uh, sentence in prison for corruption, and then Trump commuted a sentence a couple of years ago. Do you think we could get Rod Blagojevich to come on Firewall? Would he ever do it? Uh, he might, but I would not be the host if, if he did. Oh, really? I want nothing to do with that guy, man. The last, last time I saw him was in trial when I testified against him. He did this stupid thing where he tried to like stare me down as I'm walking into the courtroom. Wow. I'm like, dude, I'm not the one with fucking 14 years hanging over my head. You are. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, especially the second trial, his lawyers were so incompetent that, and keep in mind, while I never practiced law, I technically have a law degree and I'm technically a member of the New York Bar, and his lawyers literally couldn't ask a properly formed question. So they would ask me a question. I would wait. I would look at the prosecution. They would say objection. The judge would say sustained. And then they'd have to try to ask me the question again, which they usually couldn't figure out how to do, so they would just move on to the next question. So I would say, at least the second time I trialed with that crew, second time I testified with that crew, I probably answered like four questions total. Uh, that was my last experience uh, being in a room with him, and I don't ever yeah, care. you're that. not doing it again. I got you. I mean, I think it would be pretty entertaining, um, uh, but I understand why you don't want to do it. Um, yeah. Okay, uh, third item on our agenda. Um, when does going to a good college matter? 
Um, Bradley, did you start? I was not on this uh, this Zoom call with with the with the sort of college guidance people at our school, the kids' school. Is this what? Is yeah, this what it wasn't a college guidance thing. So, you know, look, I, I very much grew up in, and I imagine just based on the schools you went to, Hugo, you did too. Um, the social the society and the sort of just widely accepted, not even never questioned social norm that where you go to college is a massive determinant on your future and what profession you will have and how much money you will make and what profession you have and how much money you will make will be the main uh, the, the main multiplier impact or whatever the right word is on your happiness, right? Wait, Therefore, like you, you actually thought about like where you went to college in terms of like the money you'd make in your career, like that was something you thought about when you were in high school? I think that I maybe didn't think about it quite in that way in high school because I was in high school. Right. I think my parents very, very much did. And I think the community that I grew up in very, very much did. And it was considered to be a referendum on you as a student, your parents as parents, your earning potential and kind of success in the future, all based on, on what college you went to. Okay. Um, and so to give a little context here, so I have over the last 10 years or so developed the opinion that where you go to college is close to irrelevant, right? And we hire people here all the time and they're almost always, you know, six figure jobs or more uh, of people functioning at really high levels. And despite that, I can't remember the last time I've known or asked where an applicant uh, went to college or graduate school. I, I really just don't care in the slightest. And so I've been forming this view. Uh, there's something called Parents in Action in our kids' school, which is it's nice that they do it. It's like once every few months. Uh, they have like some facilitators and parents can come on and talk about whatever they're thinking about around their kids. I'd never been to one of these before, uh, but I thought maybe I would learn about like what kids are having parties or just things that might be useful and try and kind of, you know, parent and manage Abigail. So I, right. I went to this thing and they split us up into two groups and uh, our group mainly was parents sort of humble bragging about they're so worried because their kids are too good. They don't drink. They don't go out. All they want to do is study and help the world. And I'm sort of thinking like, OK, that's not my experience, man. And they just started really fucking annoying me. And so in, in just sort of guessing the personality type of some of the people who were doing that, I raised my hand and kind of went into the whole where they go to college doesn't matter spiel. It was just sort of related enough to their conversation that didn't seem totally out of nowhere. Right. Um, and then what was amazing is there were two very clear sets of reactions, right? I thought half the parents were kind of like nodding along with me and be like, right. You know, I told my kid to be like safe and healthy and like what fucking school they go to does not matter at all, Right. And then half the parents were completely aghast. They couldn't possibly believe that someone could think this, let alone say it out loud. Um, and so I started wondering, and, and Bob and I were talking about this too, like, okay, when, when does it matter, right? It's, it seems to not matter when you work here. Um, so when does it? And I think the answer is in very linear careers. So if your goal is to be a senior partner at a good law firm one day or a senior person at Goldman Sachs or McKinsey or some type of career where it is very conventional, highly structured, and success is extremely linear, then I think where you go to college probably does matter because it impacts where you go to grad school and where you go to grad school depends on, you know, these banks, these consulting firms, these law firms are only hiring at a certain school. So as a result, to be on that path or track. So if you are part of the professional class 
and your goal is to be at the very top of the kind of linear success professional class world, then I think where you go to college probably does make a difference. If that is not your interest of the, you know, be basically being very, very successful in a couple of different fields, and if the rest of the world appeals to you more, I don't think it matters at all. Right. Uh, and I've been telling my, by the way, this is not, I've been telling my kids this very clearly, knowing that as a result, it will probably motivate them a little less, and they're probably less likely to go to a, a great college as a result. And you know what? I just don't care. I want them to be safe. What about, it, what about not going to college at all, like Peter Thiel suggests? Yeah, I think I'd be okay. I mean, the only reason that I think I would be um, maybe a little uncomfortable with that would just be my kids both are intellectually curious, right? So I just think cutting it off arbitrarily feels stupid to me, right? Because there's just so much more that they want to learn and see and do. And neither of them could tell you today, like, I know the only thing I want to do is be a professional swimmer or whatever it is, right? And everything else is irrelevant. So given that my kids don't have some kind of like the Teal Fellows uh, are people who not only are incredibly brilliant, but usually have a specific company they're trying to build in lieu of going to college. Right. right. Um, so if that's the case, sure. I think that might make sense. I think for my kids at the moment, that's not uh, something that that is their weighing. So as a result, um, I would recommend they go to college. But if they didn't, you know, uh, not the end of the world either. Well, it strikes me you're talking about college in a really kind of weirdly one-dimensional way, though, like whether it's good for your career or not. And I'd say, you know, the other thing you mentioned, intellectual curiosity, like there's a big difference in schools about like what schools have a culture of intellectual curiosity, which don't. I mean, where I went to school, Duke, when I went there, I felt like it did not do much in that regard. Although certainly I think it's improved a lot in that way as they get sort of higher and higher caliber students. But a lot of my friends who went to schools in the Northeast like they really did have that. And they think really fondly back on their experience in school as students, not just like as a degree. And and those yeah. that is a big difference. And if your well, kids are- yeah. Although again, so I would say where I went to college, I went to Penn. So Duke and Penn are two of the top 10, 15 schools in the country on a consistent basis, right? I would say the same thing you did. Uh, it was a very intellectually uncurious place, if that's a word. Uh, everything was highly focused on just sort of linear success within that professional class. And that was all that mattered. When I went to law school in Chicago, it was the opposite environment, right? It was unbelievably intellectually rigorous. They cared about what you actually learned and studied more than what you did next. Uh, and I love that experience. I thought it was fantastic. But, you know, like you, you, you talk to friends and people you know who maybe didn't have something they were that interested till they got to college and then they discovered their field, whatever it is, and they got super into it. And I think the top 100 colleges all have good enough chemistry departments, art history departments, whatever it is that you would then, a discipline that you would fall in love with, that you could get a really good education there. And if you do well, you know, work in that profession. Oh, so you still want them to go to a top 100 college. Do you just mean you don't care of Harvard versus college? I mean, 100 was an arbitrary number that I just off there. Yeah, but I just don't think... Well, I think that's obviously true, though. Like, I just don't think there's a huge... Unless your goal is to be a senior partner at Cravath or Goldman Sachs or McKinsey very specifically, right. I think the difference between college number two and college number 72 is, is fairly non-existent. Um, last topic of the podcast. Um, you said um, you wanted to follow up on, on some feedback you got about, about last week's episode where you talked about – where we talked about why – whether people should follow – should feel like um, – 
uh, compelled is the wrong word, but should should feel it's part of their duty to to follow the news in in Ukraine and understand what's going on with the war. Yeah. So I, so both listeners, you know, reach out to me afterwards, and I I kept asking the the question to people after we recorded the podcast. I was just surprised at how many people's conclusion was. No, I don't need to watch Follow and not just the Ukraine, but sometimes in general, right? right. Um, you know, I can't do anything about it. It's all depressing. Very little of it seems accurate anyway. Uh, I am not going to waste my time with them. These are people who tend to be highly educated. They went to those good colleges we were just talking about, you know, affluent, you know, typically very successful careers. And yet they made a completely, I would argue, logical decision that they are their lives are superior by filtering most of the stuff out, right? So then that leads to the question of, uh, what we talked about the other week, I think it was last week. If you don't feel like there are any media outlets that you could rely on and trust that you think are truly objective and interesting, then your skepticism is gonna be a lot greater across the board because you don't feel like you're getting uh, the facts on the ground, right? You're just getting one person's agenda compared to another person's agenda. However, if you look at the economics of the media business, it goes the other way, right? So, you know, the media business as a business is a terrible business, right? We have ever venture fund, never invest in a media company. I can't imagine that we ever would. I don't personally invest in media companies. I think they're just a, it's, it's an awful business model. The people who make the most money are Fox and the New York Times. And the reason why is they've said, you know what, rather than having this pretense of being uh, objective and kind of this just providing facts and let people make up their own minds, we're going all in on our viewer or reader's underlying philosophy. So for the Foxes, we're going hard right, for the New York Times, going more hard left, because we believe that ultimately the echo chamber of people hearing what they want to hear, both about how virtuous they are and how evil everyone else is, will make us more money, will get us right. more subscriptions, get us better advertisers, ultimately is a more profitable business model than giving people fair and unbiased information. If that's the case, then arguably capitalism and democracy don't go quite as hand in hand as we like to think, right? Because we always sort of equate these two things as coterminous and say, you know, a strong democracy produces capitalism, strong capitalism produces democracy. And the reality is in this case, the best capitalist outcome for media outlets is to be completely one-sided and biased, which is sort of the worst thing for democracy. Right. Because people either disengage entirely because they feel like there's no point. I can't get honest information or people are completely polarized and hyperpartisan because that's what these outlets are telling them to do. So e- either way, um, interestingly, the business model for media these days and the best interests of democracy now seem to be at odds with each other. All right, Bradley, let's let's leave listeners with like um, like a little reward at the end, um, because now you've given them permission to, to stop reading the newspaper um, what should they be reading or watching uh, based on your recommendations um, over the last week? Yeah, that's a good um, that's a good question. Um, so I, I would say I haven't probably read or watched any new TV shows, although I'm very excited about the new Lakers show on HBO. You are? Uh, yeah, yeah, winning time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm worried to- it's going to be like a whitewash of a great story. I just don't see them actually telling the real story of the Lakers, which I think would be amazing. That could be true, but the reviews are, are pretty good. So that's um, so that's something. And then, you know, I don't think over the last few days at least I've read anything all that meaningful. I've kind of jumped around a little bit from book to book. 
but I've, I've been reading mainly Laurie Siegel's new book because we're having her on the podcast, I think, on Wednesday right. about her career in journalism and tech. Uh, and I'm enjoying that so far. So I would say that's at the moment. Um, but look, the reality is uh, I don't know that you have to replace not reading the New York Times or Fox News, whatever it is, with something that I would consider to be productive, right? The answer is if you like playing video games or you like swimming or you like playing pinball or whatever it is, just do that, right? There's If you get back to the sociopath part of this discussion, if there's no absolute moral truth and every time we think that there is, it's just some third party imposing their views and values on us. If we finally reject that as illegitimate, then you know, knowing what's happening to Ukraine is no morally superior or inferior, you know, than it is, you know, growing flowers in your backyard. It's all the same thing. On that note, Bradley, see you next week. See you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.